Uh, bonjour. Uh, would you like to come aboard my spaceship? <laughs> I have some baguettes and some onions around my neck. They are not onions, they are tentacles. Aha, I fooled you, for I am an alien. You may have confused the word stereotype and spaceship. Oh, sorry. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! Hello and welcome to another episode of the Nerdfest podcast. Today's nerds are... Karis Gibson Andy Chandler Peter Johnson John Farthing And I'm Dan Watkins. On today's episode, it's a recommendation special. We've been watching lots of interesting and exciting things and we can't wait to tell you all about them. So let's get started. Hey, hey look, we're back online. I know it, in a we virtual are. pod studio. It's like we've gone back a year. Why is that? Uh, unfortunately, John has plague, so uh, we're all having to stay well clear of him. And Daniel also has the plague, although you're you're less plaguey than me. I think symptoms wise, I think you've been better off. Yeah, my my testicles fell off. <laughs> Damn you! But that's just because I've been inside for five days with limited forms of entertainment. <laughs> what are you recommending this week, John? <laughs> <laughs> Masturbation. <laughs> <laughs> John so much relies on going out to keep him entertained. We had this theory the other day that it was like Back to the Future, where if John doesn't get to go out, he slowly fades away like the photographs. (laughs) (laughs) But the farthing variant is not one I'd want to catch. (laughs) Definitely not. You just feel a compulsion to watch Hellraiser 5 on a loop. Oh dear, no. I still haven't watched that. I'll be uh, sticking to the things I've been catching up on now. I've actually got lots of time to spare to watch telly. Way, way back in the day, I think somebody on this podcast recommended Barry with Bill Hader. Yes. I finally started Barry, and it's amazing. It's so good. That's coming back in a couple of days, isn't it? It is. Yeah, season three starts in this week, maybe, I think. Yeah, so I'm halfway through season two now, and I can't believe it's taken me this long to get around to it, but I'm really, really impressed. And hopefully I'll finish season two in time to jump straight onto the new ones. Hmm. Do some of the uh, workshop scenes in Barry have an awkward familiarity? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Ian might be listening. He won't be listening. Yeah, I've also followed one of your old recommendations, Peter, and we have finally been watching Call My Agent. Oh, yes, that's very good. Again, just in time for the English remake to come about on Prime in a couple of weeks' time. Again, it's just fantastic, and we've been meaning to watch it for ages. We're finally well into it, and if you've never watched Call My Agent on Netflix, the original French version, it is sublime. Call My Agent is what I say every time I hear how Peter has edited me on the podcast, Um, and then I remember I don't have an agent. (laughs) I could be your agent, John. You're an award-winning comedian now, Kevin, sir, so you'll need your own agent soon. She could represent herself. Mm -hmm. No one else takes a cut. So if you're representing John, what differences would you insist on to further his career? I'd just bully everybody into giving him work. <laughs> just bully them. <laughs> that's that's what you do, right? My understanding, yeah. So I'll go, I'll, go, I'll go to like a gig and the promoter will have a black eye and be crying. And when I ask why, he'll just say, no reason. You're welcome. Tell her to stop. Get things done. Was it Peter Grant who managed Led Zeppelin back in the 70s? Yeah, it was. I can imagine Kevis were cricket bats threatening comedy bookers to put on stage or else. 
Yeah, John, we've yeah. just had the Fringe program through the letterbox for this year. It looks like you're headlining everywhere. Am I? Excellent. <laughs> You've done good work, Karis. It's only taken her three minutes. I know. That's impressive, considering the book will have been printed two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm just that good. Yeah. yeah you, you're not getting your 10% though. <laughs> I think that cricket bat might be getting a bit more exercise then, John. <laughs> I know where you live. 20%, have 20. <laughs> so Dan, uh, which of my recommendations have you been catching up on? Was it the depressing genocide film or the documentary about trees? Was the one about the volleyball? Oh, great. Yeah. How many times did you watch it? 400. That's about right, yeah. Mm. It was that gif from Tekken 3, Tekken Ball mode, wasn't it? No, no, that's far too exciting. Oh, was it Dead or Alive Beach Volleyball, the incredibly sexist Xbox 360 game? Most notable for its breast physics, yeah. sadly. They'd spent more time on that than any other aspect of the game. Breast physics would be a good name for a band. Andy's face suggests this was, uh, yeah, this was not it, the volleyball film. It was not. It was, it was far more salacious than that. So I've got the Top Gun board game, and it's a two-part game. You can flip the board over... And one side is like a big plane battle, but genuinely you flip it over and half the game is just a virtual volleyball game. Oh, weird. With cards. I thought normally people only flip the board over when they lost. Imagine flipping the board over because you're so annoyed with the game and then there's just another game on the other side. (laughs) Another game for your loser. Is this because you're meant to play it in a Top Gun plane, which does lots and lots of flips, so Ah. no matter which way up you are, you can still play? I did play the volleyball version topless and oiled up, Mm. which was fun. (laughs) For you. Made the cards quite slippy, though. I was reading about Top Gun Maverick recently, and it did make me realise I've probably got more nostalgia for the Top Gun NES game than I do the original film. Mm. That was a good game. I was terrible at it. I have not seen the film. Me too. And I feel no shame about it. Now, that is a shameful gap. No, I disagree. And Kevish, you've never seen it either? Never. I've seen Hot Shots with Charlie Sheen, so I think I get the idea. <laughs> when you run out of Keanu Reeves movies to watch with your friend, Karis, does that mean you're going to have to work your way through Tom Cruise movies? Happily, yes. I think my favourite Tom Cruise movie is Interview with the Vampire. Mm. Very good in that. What's the one called Live, Die, Repeat in America? It has a different title here. Oh, um, it was called Edge of Tomorrow when they released it. Terrible title. The original book was called All You Need Is Kill. That's no Which better. Which I also think is a terrible title. Yeah. It, it makes no sense, but at least it's got a ring to it. It's memorable. No, I think All You Need Is Kill is grammatically irritating. I think Live, Die, Repeat is marginally better than that. Mm-hmm. Still not watching it. Have you seen that one, Karis? No, I haven't. Uh, that'll be a great one for your Tom Cruise rewatch. <laughs> it's in my top three cruises. Yeah, I think so too. Along with Penelope and... The Caribbean. Yes. No, uh, a night out of Al Pacino in the 70s. It's a niche reference there. Oli Peter gets that one, I think. Yeah, his gay cruising picture. Terrible film. I haven't seen it. He's, he's, he's an undercover cop that goes undercover in the 1970s gay fetish S&M scene in New York. Sounds lovely. That sounds incredible. Is it sensitively handled? It's, it's about as sensitively handled as Keris with a cricket bat. <laughs> oh, it's not good. No, it's from the director of The Exorcist, and it is the weirdest film. Does the gay club get an exorcism? Even at the time, it was offensive. Thanks for dredging it up then, John. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> eight out of ten. <laughs> eight out of ten what? Eight, eight, eight no. out of <laughs> Who would like to recommend something first this week? Karis, let's hear your recommendation first, your return to the podcast after some time away, what you've been watching. I would like to recommend Human Resources. Has anyone seen it? Nope. No. Had meetings with them a couple of times, but... (laughs) I watched half an episode this morning, but I'm looking forward to um, hearing you talk about it because I didn't get deep into it, so maybe there's something I've missed. Human Resources is a Netflix series it's a spin-off of Big Mouth, but you don't have to have seen Big Mouth to enjoy it. It combines my favourite things, filth and monsters. It's a mixture of The Office meets Inside Out. The idea is that every human being has a board of directors, and this is where the HR team come in. They've got an ambition goblin, a logic rock, need demon, and sometimes an addiction angel. There's a commentary on the relationships between different feelings. So, for instance, love bugs can turn into hate worms and can be crazy and make irrational decisions. My favourite episode is when two people fall in love, but they have to walk away from each other because one of them isn't well. One of the biggest things that the series is about is about how love is shown up and being vulnerable which is quite touching, and the first episode leaves us with the quote, you'll never be ready, all you can do is try. So is this animated or a live action? It's animated, yes. And sort of tone-wise, is it a comedy or more, more a drama? It's mostly comedy, but there's bits of drama throughout the series. There's one episode that's quite deep, but it's mostly a comedy. Simpsons style or a little bit more realistic than that? I wouldn't say it's The Simpsons. They, they, they try to cover quite deep topics like childbirth and Alzheimer's and grief. So the, the big topics, but they're done with different jokes and different personas covering different mm-hmm. emotions. So is, are the human characters kind of continuous throughout or do we see different people in each episode? There's a few that are continuous throughout. There's one storyline of a woman who's just become a mother for the first time and she's struggling to love the baby because she's had so much change and she's, her body's been through such a trauma and she doesn't instantly love the baby. But it talks about how there's different kinds of love and how different people love in different ways. Not everybody loves immediately. With some people, you know, there's a lot of patience in it. So it was quite interesting to see all these different characters personify these very real emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, quite important stuff. And it's interesting to have that dealt with in the animated format where you might expect something lighter or sillier or, you know, if you're one of the presenters at the Oscars, aimed only at children. <laughs> but this is clearly not that. It's clearly trying to make some big points. Well, the thing is, with Big Mouth, it's an animated series about teenagers. They get a hormone monster when they hit puberty. The spin-offers that get other characters being their human resources, helping to guide them through different events in life. I loved it. I watched the whole series in one night. Wow. Would you like to have some human resources? 
Yeah, I don't know where all of mine are. <laughs> they just didn't show up. Explains a lot. They've all gone to the, the uh, Christmas office party. <laughs> Who's your favourite one? Is it the Logic Rock or the Hormone Monster or the Love Bug or the... Oh, they're all great. My favourite character, she's a hormone monster called Connie and she's played by Maya Rudolph and she's just fantastic. They're all very big characters and you've got different kinds you know, you don't just have one love bug. There's a few different love bugs in the office and they've got different styles of love. So they get different humans. So one of the love bugs in particular is is so intense that when he gets angry, he turns into a hate worm because <laughs> people have different styles of love. I had a love bug once. Um, I recommend no, penicillin. John. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. You can't stop him as easily online. I think it's really cool that it's tackling the big topics. Um, I don't think that animation should uh, shy away from that. Comedy shouldn't shy away from that. I didn't get to that um, when I watched a little bit this morning. I was slightly put off because I think that the comedy style just isn't for me. It's not, not my style. I thought it maybe tonally had a little bit of the family guy about it. Do you think that's fair or have I got the wrong end of the stick? I wouldn't say so because I hate family guy. But it is a fast-paced, animated sitcom. So, Karis, how many love bugs out of ten would you give human resources? I would give it seven love bugs out of ten. And how many hate worms? (laughs) Two. Two? And um, eleven hormone monsters. So that's a total of 19 out of ten. Is it? Wow. Or is that 20? Impressive. 19 out of 10, I think that's our first... 180% 180% recommended. Pretty good. But speaking of hate worms, John, do you want to go next? <laughs> Why not? Um, so <laughs> I have been watching a recent film that came out on Netflix this week called Choose or Die, which is a low-budget horror film. Now, I thought I would really enjoy this going into it because it combines a few things that I like. The general plot outline is based on an 80s computer game called Cursor a fictional game, but based on that fad of the late 80s 8-bit game where they actually buried some treasure somewhere and you would follow a series of clues within the game to find a prize. So this is an 8-bit text adventure game that is found by a retro gaming enthusiast who loads it up in his ZX Spectrum. This guy's in his retro gaming man cave playing this 8-bit computer text adventure game whilst his wife and child are arguing outside and their argument starts to appear on the screen as part of the text adventure. He's then presented with a choice of his mouth or her ears, and then underneath the words choose or die repeatedly appear. He types in his mouth and walks out to find a scene of horror involving his child's tongue, a pair of scissors, and a distraught wife who appears to have lost control of her limbs. What? This is before the credits start. This sounds amazing. No, 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 go, go, no, I, I, I don't understand. I don't remember that accessory for the Spectrum. So it was only for the 48k Spectrum. You oh, the, right, the 16k okay. one. It wasn't compatible. <laughs> he is then forced to make copies of this game and distribute them throughout the world or be forced to continue playing the game. So this is, this is our opening setup. About three months later, a young girl finds a copy of the game and takes it to a kind of friend, kind of boyfriend, played by Aza Butterfield of Sex Education fame. 
who loads the game up and shenanigans ensue throughout. So far, it sounds exactly the sort of thing you'd like. Yeah, and it's, it's a really interesting concept. It's a mix and match. There's a bit of Final Destination in there. There's a bit of the, the Japanese horror films, sort of things like Ring and One Missed Call, where a curse would be passed on and technology interacting with mythology and cults and things like that. So it, it's, it's an interesting concept, but it doesn't really work. The first half hour was really interesting. There's some good, fun horror set pieces. If you liked things like Final Destination, that kind of overly elaborate death sequence is kind of in there. But about halfway through, as they kind of start to unravel the mystery, unfortunately, the film also unravels with it and it falls apart. It was made in 2021 and was clearly made for about 15 pence. Um, it's really, really low budget, and Netflix have picked it up and made it a Netflix original and given it quite a big marketing push. It was clearly filmed in London with a British cast and obviously lots of London suburbs in the background, but it's set in an unnamed American city for reasons that are completely unnecessary. So everybody is speaking with a really, really bad American accent, and so you've got like soap opera actors turning up and random aerial shots of New York interspersed with shots of. Dagenham and it's it, it kind of the, the thing that Hellraiser did back in the 80s where you know the producers wanted to make it more palatable to an American audience so had everybody speaking in fake accents it's really distracting there's lots of ideas thrown in there but none of them really work it, it's interesting if you're a fan of that sort of film you'll probably get 85 minutes of entertainment out of it because it's very short not really enough to hook any non-genre fans you were so close to an actual recommendation there John <laughs> You got really annoyed by the anachronistic games at the beginning of Wonder Woman 1984, so you must have been frothing at the mouth with rage throughout this entire thing. I was. Uh, the refresh rate and the resolution of the game on the screen at the beginning was far beyond what the spectrum <laughs> could produce. <laughs> I'm sure that was the biggest problem with the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that thing with the scissors that you described, that was fine. but That was fine, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's kind of a monkey's paw type thing where you think, well, I'll go for the nice option, but then it turns into the nasty option, despite the nasty option making no logical sense whatsoever. So there's a bit where they can break some more stuff or clean some stuff up, and they set to clean some stuff up. And then the way that they choose to clean things up is particularly nasty and gruesome, but if, if you had a book called A Thousand and One Ways to Clean Something Up, this method would not appear in volume three of that book. Hydrochloric acid? No. Um, Bleach? Or, Sulfuric. Yes. <laughs> the other thing is, um, Robert England is heavily trailed in it, as in, and featuring Robert England. Uh, don't get excited. In what must be the easiest check ever, uh, Robert England picks up a check for being the voice of a phone line where you phone to claim the prize because, Hi, I'm Robert England, star of A Nightmare on Elm Street and Hollywood royalty. Please enter the code to claim your prize and... That is literally the entirety of his performance over the phone. And I'd love to know how much he got paid for what must have been a minute's work. Phoning it in. You think when they fed him those scripted lines, he, he himself questioned, Hollywood royalty, really? Mm, I mean... Adjacent. Hollywood adjacent royalty. Although he has been announced as the playing the villain in the new season of Stranger Things. Oh. So I was very excited to see his face pop up a couple of times during the trailer. And when I heard his voice, I did a little squee. So, Keris, as our other horror film aficionado, does that appeal? 
I love the sound of that. I can't wait to watch it. I'm going to watch it tonight. I think you'll enjoy it. I want to play it. You want to play it? <laughs> I'm joking. Mm. <laughs> okay, John, prepare a choice mm. for Karis right now. Go. <laughs> uh, would you like to uh, <laughs> lick it or chew it? Chew it. Oh, no. You've just pulled your hamster out of its cage and put in a chewing gum wrapper and sent it to Dan, who's not got his glasses on, so he thought it was a piece of chewing gum, and now he's he's choking to death on it. I didn't even want to play. (laughs) You choose, but... Other people suffer the consequences. Yeah. That sounds ideal. Yeah, um... Dan's face. (laughs) Before I give it a score, though, I would like to give it an adjacent recommendation for people who are in Edinburgh over the fringe. When you play the game, your choice comes up, and then if you don't type your choice in, it says choose or die. And then if you still don't choose, a voice starts going, choose or die, choose or die, which reminded me of nothing more than The Dark Room, which is um, a live retro choose-your-own-adventure game performed by an insane Australian guy called John Robertson, who forces people to play his adventure game and hands out disappointing prizes if they don't die. And that's at the Fringe, and it's one of the, the one of the, my favourite things to go and see at the Fringe every year. So don't watch the film, but go to the Fringe and watch um, The Dark Room instead. So it's a high score for The Dark Room, but what are you giving? Choose or die? Yeah, I'm going choose to... Choose, John, or die. Choose ah, or die. Don't make me choose. Something bad's going to happen to one of you. <laughs> I'm going to give it um, six really, really obscure choices that don't have much to do with the choice you actually made out of ten. Six out of ten is actually a pretty strong recommendation for John. I think it's a record. But it's a borderline five or six. Even so. One other thing before I forget, um, the soundtrack is done by Liam Howlett of The Prodigy, and so the soundtrack is great. If they release that as an album, I would buy that. So that was Choose or Die. Who shall I choose next? Because if I don't choose someone... Someone else dies, is that right, John? If you choose Andy, then Peter dies. If you choose Peter, then Andy dies. I'll go next. Well, I'll go, <laughs> I, I could go next, and then neither of them will die. Maybe we both die. Both of them. Oh, God. Let's find out. Have at it, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to stick with Netflix for my recommendation. And What's this lump? I'm... Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit dark. Maybe you want to start <laughs> <laughs> Well, it looks like Andy and Peter have both survived the beginning of this introduction to my recommendations, so hopefully they'll make it through the rest of it. I'm sticking with Netflix for my choice this week, and it's Apollo Ten and a Half, which is the new film from Richard Linklater. It's an animated film in a similar style to A Scanner Darkly and Waking Life, two of his previous films. A young kid in the late 60s growing up in Houston in Texas is called upon by two people from NASA because the space shuttle they've made for the imminent moon landing is slightly too small and they can't waste the money, so he's going to have to go up there before the astronauts. (laughs) Um, That's the frame of it. The actual story of it is about growing up in the 60s in Texas. It's a very specific set of memories and remembrances and nostalgia, but it's done in that Richard Linklatery way that if you've seen or loved boyhood is very familiar, very specific experiences that even if that exact thing didn't happen to you, something very similar to it did. And 
It's all narrated by the boy when he's older, voiced by Jack Black, playing it straight, doing it really, really well. Just talking about growing up with his siblings, what they used to watch on TV, what Sundays with their grandmothers were like, car trips they take with their family, ways that you'd get punished and get in trouble if you broke the rules. Mixed in with what it was like in America, the space race really hotting up, Houston really being built as a community around NASA. Everyone had someone or knew someone who worked there, and it was all building towards this one day when people were going to land on the moon. When it gets lost in those memories, it's just superb to relax and let it kind of take you back to that time and place. And Linklater does that really, really well. It did remind me of boyhood in a lot of ways. And quite similar to Everybody Wants Some, his college film from a few years ago as well. Mm -hmm. When it gets back to the actual plot of The Boy's Gotta Go Up in the Spaceship, it became quite obvious to me that, you know, he's you know, he's daydreaming, he's fantasizing of, oh yeah, I got picked, I went up to the moon before anyone else, I was the first person on the moon. Maybe he was. Maybe he fell asleep when the moon landing was on TV and he dreamt the whole thing. Doesn't really matter. The point is this just beautiful animated slice of life in 60s America, and nobody quite does slices of life like Richard Linklater does. So, I had a really nice, heartwarming, lovely hour and a half watching this when I was feeling really rubbish with the COVID, and it cheered me up. Did you think the animation style helped tell the story, or maybe allowed them to do things they couldn't do otherwise? I think it did a little bit. There were lots of lovely little visual flourishes that you wouldn't have got in live action. So when he talks about films they used to go and see, that one of their grandmothers every six months would keep taking them to the movies to see The Sound of Music. And he was never sure if it kept getting re-released or whether it was still just running or whether it was special occasions and she made sure they always went. But you would see the films playing on the screen or episodes of The Twilight Zone playing on the TV and the style of animation would change with what they were watching. Or if they were talking about board games that they used to play, they were able to sort of flash up all the different covers and... It did this in a way where you could have done it in live action, but it would have come across quite cheesy and corny, and it doesn't do that when it's animated. So I think it was a valid choice to do it in animation, and it puts you more in that childlike mindset, I think, as well. Because animation is for children, right? Only for children. It's for adults to endure, as we all know, as the Oscars (laughs) taught us. Yeah. Thanks, Amy Schumer. I've uh, I bought my nephew Fritz the Cat on DVD. Having been told that no. animation is entirely for children, so let's see how that one goes. Well, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was kind of meandering and pretty much all about just being in California without much of a plot. Is that an unfair comparison uh, with this film? Have I got the got it wrong? Well, it's about an hour shorter. It's only four hours long, then. It's only an hour and a half long, wow. um, which is really nice. But I think the best comparison is probably other films by the same director. So something like Before Sunrise, the joy of that film is the bit that's not the plot. It's just them Mm -hmm. walking and talking and getting to know each other. This is a little bit like that. There is a story there if you want it, but the charm of it is the bits that don't deal with that directly. It's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, so if you have watched other Linklater films like Boyhood or Everybody Wants Some or things like that and they've not been for you, this is unlikely to be for you either. 
what they always do for me is there's something in them where you go, I've had this experience, I've had something similar to this, this does that as well. That time NASA called you and sent you to the moon. Yeah, exactly. I I was the 13th person, they Mm -hmm. never remember it, but you know, what can you do? So Richard Linklater, I either love or hate, like Before Sunrise is absolutely beautiful and one of my favourite films and I loved Waking Life. Boyhood, I found interminably dull and tedious and don't think I got to the end of it. I think you've got to be in the right mindset for a Richard Linklater film. That's about right. I was in the mindset to watch it. I allowed it to transport me back. There was lots of good 60s music and I had a really good time. But it's a short film, so if it doesn't click for you, it's not going to be all night. Mm -hmm. I've never seen any Linklater films. He churns them out as well, doesn't he? He's incredibly productive. He's in the midst of making Merrily We Roll Along, Mm -hmm. a Sondheim adaptation, which they're doing in, I think, reverse order of the show, but chronological order of the actors' ages over a 20-year period. Yeah, They'll finish filming it in like 2040, and then it'll be released, but they're filming the first scenes of the show last, and they've already done the last scenes because that's how the play works, but I don't know it as a musical. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he's working on that, but he goes off and does other things at the same time. He's supposed to be doing a couple of biopics next, including one of Bill Hicks. Hmm. Hmm. Who would you cast as Bill Hicks? Miles Teller. Hmm. Hmm. Will Forte could pull it off if he could do drama. Miles Teller can do drama. He can. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel Radcliffe. Fuck off. If he could play Weird Al, he could play Bill Hicks. He's playing Weird Al? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's going to be bizarre. Mm -hmm. He makes such weird choices, Dan Radcliffe, doesn't he? Because he can. (laughs) It's the anti-Potter, really, isn't it? Just trying to distance himself as far away as possible from it. I'm not sure he is, because he kind of embraces the fandom aspect of it, and he turns up at these, you know, um, retrospective things. I think he's just got more money than he can spend there was a time when he was trying not to do that and there were mm-hmm. two sets of directors that approached him. There were ones that wanted to have Harry Potter and there were ones that wanted to do things that were totally the opposite. And because he'd spent 10 years being Harry Potter, he picked the ones that were opposite. Yeah. But what that did was it showed he can do both things. So now he's got the freedom to just do whatever films he wants. The only people I think he said that he would just do a film for, sight unseen, no script read, uh, the people who did Swiss Army Man. Mm-hmm. Hmm. He, if they wanted him for another film, he would just do that film, no questions asked. Swiss Army Man's a great film. It was really good. He plays a farting corpse in it, doesn't he? He does. But quite a helpful farting corpse. It's by the uh, directing team known as Daniels, I believe. Yes, yeah. They're both called Daniel. Their film that's out in America at the moment doesn't have a distributor over here. Um, sounds really interesting. A multiverse, um, action-y, comedy thing. Everything, everywhere, all at once. That's the one. Rubbish title, but it looks like a really fun film. I'm anticipating that, but maybe I should whet my appetite with um, Swiss Army Man. It's in your wheelhouse, I think. Excellent. There's not many genocides in it, but other than that... <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fine. I'll give it a go. How many Apollo missions out of ten and a half would you give this film? I would give this Apollo eight and a half out of ten and a half. Excellent. So Daniel, oh now I've got choose or I've die. Got to choose or die now. Oh no. Do you want to finish this section on uh, the fun one or on my one? We're assuming Peter's is fun. Uh, Peter's shaking his head. 
Um, th- this doesn't help the choice. On the other hand, comparing to whatever Andy's chosen, it probably is. I'm going to choose whatever Andy's chosen. Well, the latest entry in Andy's pantheon of arty foreign films on movie that no one else will watch <laughs> is Martin Eden. It's a 2019 film adaptation of Jack London's novel of the same name, published 110 years prior. It's an Italian production directed and co-written by Pietro Marcello. The story is transplanted from California to Naples, but still follows the titular Martin Eden, an uneducated, working-class sailor who strives to become a writer. Martin is a handsome, rough, simple guy who steps in to rescue a young man named Arturo from a brawl and is rewarded by being invited by Arturo to lunch with his wealthy family at their lavish, opulent home. Martin is enchanted by the trappings of the upper classes, as well as by Arturo's sister, Elena, and resolves to remake himself as a refined, educated gentleman who could fit into such a world. He begins a romantic relationship with Elena, and as he does so, he yearns to become a successful writer in order to rise above his humble proletarian circumstances, but struggles to earn the recognition of publishers and the acceptance of the bourgeoisie alike. Uh, So the film's driven by an excellent and quietly powerful performance from Luca Marinelli, for which he won the Volpi Cup for Best Actor at the 2019 Venice International Film Festival. And I don't think he slapped anyone on stage, so extra points for that. Jack London, uh, a committed socialist, wrote Martin Eden as a semi-autobiographical account of his own life, but he made the protagonist a social Darwinist who rejects socialism as a slave morality. The character retains this perspective in the film, debating with a striking socialist union and asserting his belief in Nietzschean individualism. You can tell I've practiced some of the words in this. Uh, Martin eventually achieves his desired success, but only after becoming jaded and cynical, finding himself unable to enjoy what he had worked so hard for. So the film portrays the hollowness of fame, wealth, and material success. Jack London is one of my very favourite writers. I was pleased to see how faithful the film was to the novel. It's beautifully shot and marries pretty, romantic imagery with grimy realism. The images have a gritty texture which adds to this and gives it the appearance and feel of something that might have been made decades ago. Overall, Martin Eden is a beautifully crafted study of a fascinating, relatable character and of interesting philosophical ideas. It does lie slightly towards the arty end of the spectrum, but it's still accessible and thoroughly entertaining. I think lots of people would enjoy this film. How much grimy realism? I like an escapism in my films. The grimy realism really refers to the reality of the struggles of, of the working class in Naples. Um, there's one point when he takes um, his girlfriend Elena to the slums and the ghettos and um, walks her down dark alleys and um, shows her the kind of things he's writing about because he's getting pushback from the poshos about how he writes about grim, sad things. And uh, his, his response is, well, hang on, why shouldn't I write about this? This is real life. It's not brutal, there's not a lot of violence in it or anything, but it's more just uh, the portrayal of the deprivation that some people live in, in in opposition to the opulence of the the upper classes. And for our capitalist Tory listeners, how are they going to get on with it? I don't care. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The film actually doesn't kind of explicitly lean one way or another politically. It's just from knowing a bit about Jack London, reading a bit about him and about the film. Martin Eden is very much uh, a protagonist. You're supposed to like him, but you're not necessarily supposed to agree with his views. However, he does espouse them passionately, and um, the, the socialists in the film are not especially portrayed as sympathetic. So it's, it's, I 
don't think anyone on uh, the political spectrum will be particularly turned off by this. And this is Jack London as in The Call of the Wild? Absolutely. Him of writing about dogs and that. Mm. Is there a dog? I don't think so. I'm, I'm out. Could have used an animated dog sidekick. Now, now I'm on board. <laughs> it's not too late to edit one in. They could go in a van and solve mysteries. <laughs> oh, God. I'm listening. And it turns out to be... This is for the English language version, Andy. Yeah, it, turn, it turns out to be a capitalist just with a mask that they pull off and he goes, I'd have got away with it too if it wasn't for you pesky socialists. <laughs> Sold. What's their vehicle called, John? The, 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 the means of production. Machine. <laughs> <laughs> the means of production machine, yes. So how many uh, streets of Napoli out of 10 would you give this, Andy? Oh, I'm hovering between an eight and a nine. Can I have an eight and a half? Yeah, one is a small back street. Okay. <laughs> eight wide, brightly lit, slightly untidy streets and um, one small dank little alley with um, suspect pimps and things in it. Dank is such a good word. Sounds fun, huh? <laughs> that would be my choice of street. Or die. <laughs> so there's, there's only one recommendation left, and it is Peter. Bring us home, Peter. I would like to talk about Big Bug, which is recently available on Netflix from director Jean-Pierre Jeunet, best known for Amelie, City of Lost Children, Delicatessen, and Alien Resurrection. It follows some of the conventions of a traditional farce, but set decades in the future, where robots have taken over many parts of our lives teachers, servants, and lovers, but now the robots are planning a revolution and mankind is on the endangered list. The reason it feels like a farce is it's mainly set in one large room with lots of arguments and shouting between the members of a warring family, and even one character who spends most of the movie running around in her underwear. Over the course of the movie, we learn not everyone there is the person they choose to present to the outside world, not even the robots. And there are thousands of evil robot dudes, all played by the same actor who go around like a psychopathic robocop, intent on wiping out humans that don't comply with their rules. Another robocopy touch is a TV show we keep cutting to, called Homo Ridiculous, where the evil robots humiliate their former masters daily. Visually, the entire movie is style like a 50s idea of the future, with bright colours and curvy furniture, and CGI used liberally for some of the robot characters. It's all very weird, very visual, and very French. I did really enjoy it, mainly because it's so different to what we usually see. That novelty is probably the main thing that keeps you interested, so it may not be for everyone. It's currently available on Netflix, in French with English subtitles, and an English dub. I assume it's too weird for anyone else to have seen it? I watched the trailer this morning, I thought it looked great, looks really good, and it's got subtitles, so I have to watch it. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it, and it sounds really good. It sounds like it would be weird, but that is no bad thing, especially when Jeunet is directing, so mm. I might well give it a go. I rewatched um, Alien Resurrection the other day. Oh, I'm sorry. I, it's, 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 it's got some terrible CGI in it, but what was interesting was how much of um, the director comes through, in, even in that film. Oh, really? The second half is very much generic action, but the first half, you, there's a lot of genuisms. Certainly sort of the camera angles and the shots, and it's got that sense of French weirdness that permeates his other films. Things like Ron Perlman gives yeah. it some degree of that feel. And the alien having a little beret. <laughs> the alien just goes off to find itself in Paris at the end. It's surprising. <laughs> 
That really tickled me. Ripley gets there and it just shrugs. (laughs) (laughs) I like the director, but I have a low tolerance for farce. It is quite farcy, but there are lots of really good and really weird and really interesting things in it. So Mm -hmm. I'll be interested to see what you think if you do happen to come across it. I think all that blending of all that weirdness with a farce is what interests me. I noted in the trailer that the um, leader of the evil robots looked like a deranged version of Robocop, but without his helmet on, and I enjoyed that. Yeah, he's he's great. Uh, it's loads of stuff really straight into camera with his weird teeth and his weird stare and his very French sort of nose, uh, which just looks weird on a robot body. But yeah, I thought it was really good. And there seems to be this sort of French thing. I think it's the visual side of things that seems to make them go into science fiction stuff. And they like the sort of fantasy and the weird take on things. Have you seen many of the other films that he's done? But I assume everyone's seen like City of Lost Children. No. No. Oh. No, I haven't. More shameful gaps. Mm-hmm. I have seen Amelie. I think everyone's seen Amelie. Yeah. I, I have not seen no. that one. I haven't, no. Wow. More shameful gaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. We're uncovering them all now. Why are we watching all these weird films when we should be watching some good films? <laughs> uh, c- coming soon, the Nerdfest spin off podcast, uh, French Cinema with Peter Johnson. <laughs> French sci fi. <laughs> I mean, presumably everyone's seen The Fifth Element, at least, but I bet we have totally different opinions on that. I, across the I, five I hate The Fifth Element. <sighs> I really hate it. Hazel does as well. What do you hate the most about it? Joe can fuck off. Chris Tucker. Oh, yeah. How oh, that man's got oh, a career. Just because he took over from Prince to play that role. Yeah. That role was made for Chris Tucker's blend of um, high-pitched, annoying weirdness. But if Prince had done it, maybe you'd have ended up hating Prince instead, John. And then where would you be? Would never happen. <laughs> Prince would have been great in it. Because Prince's film career, is he's never did a bad role apart from... All of them, apart from Purple Rain, when he essentially played himself and was incredibly wooden at playing himself. Another resounding recommendation from John. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fifth element. I mean, the gender politics in it aside, um, uh, I think it's really fun. Though I haven't watched it for a while, and that's a very nostalgic view. I do worry if I watch it again that I'll think differently of it, so I'm not going to. Hmm. One of the better non-diehard Bruce Willis's? I think so. I think he's great in it. And, and I mean, we still, every time we come across things, we often go multi-pass whenever we have some sort of password for something. <laughs> yeah, and I got my head on like the fifth element last year. <laughs> it's nice of you to be wearing the outfit tonight as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, John, thanks for wearing the yeah, leader yeah, outfit. Yeah, it, 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 it chafes a little bit, actually. That can't have been easy to wear. <laughs> Didn't she subsequently marry an acquaintance of yours? Uh, yeah, Paul W.S. Anderson, who yeah. I did some music for his very early projects for when he was coming through film school. And look at him now. If you were going to pick a filmmaker, Paul Anderson, to know, then I'm, you know... you <laughs> Pick the I wrong one, is that what you're uh, saying? I, 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 I mean, I don't know. We watched Licorice Pizza the other night. I know you loved it, Karis, but not for me. <laughs> I loved it! Um, but based on his other films, <laughs> yes, perhaps, perhaps that Paul Anderson might be my Paul Anderson. Not Alien versus Predator Requiem. Oh no, he did the first Alien versus Predator, didn't he? He did. And nearly did Alien Resurrection, taking us full circle back to, you know. He wrote a script for it, yeah. I don't know if he was in the frame to direct it. So what was the other classic? I mean, going back, Barbarella is probably oh yeah another very, very French one, and another one where I would imagine you're a fan of the outfits. That was the first X-film I ever saw with Barbarella. And weirdly enough, I saw it at a school film club. <laughs> <laughs> so quite how that happened, I don't know. 
Georges Méliès' A Voyage to the Moon. I've seen that. That's really good. Yeah, it's great fun. Is that the first sci-fi film? It's got to be very early. One of the first films on record. The invention in that's amazing. So sci-fi in France go hand in hand. 12 Monkeys is based on a weird sort Mm. of half an hour thing that's just still photographs that tells a story that 12 Monkeys then took and developed and turned into something entirely different. Mm. But that was a French film as well. I've seen that film. I think it's an extra on the DVD, maybe, or the Blu-ray of 12 Monkeys. La Jetée. That's the one. And it's not quite... There's one movement in it. I think, doesn't somebody blink at one point in it? And having watched still frames for 20 minutes, just that little tiny bit of movement. Like that bit in uh, Blade Runner, where the photograph he sees of his family, and all of a sudden, like the light moves, mm-hmm. and it's quite weird when you think it's a photograph. What was, what was the film called? Big Bugs. Big Bug. Big Bug. How many overly large insects out of ten would you give it? I would give it eight out of ten. Mm. But it depends whether you like it or not. It is one of these very much like <laughs> love it or hate it films. I, yeah. I loved it, but not everyone will. But we should all go back and watch our classic Genet's first. Yeah. Definitely. Go, yeah. If you haven't seen City of Lost Children, just stop listening to this podcast now and go and find it and watch it because it's amazing. Okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> what do you think, Ander? Um, It was uh, much more brutally violent than I thought it was going to be. Mm. And um, I, I thought that uh, Ricky Gervais was actually a lot better than, than he normally is. Um, in, in the lead role as um, Cynthia. So uh, I've got a newfound respect for him. Yeah. The giraffes were brilliant there. Mm-hmm. Very good giraffes. Don't know why they were purple. And five recommendations later, that brings us to the end of another edition of the Nerdfest podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you did, please give us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our feed so you never miss an episode. Tell all your friends to listen. And if you do any of those things, John has got an extra special French surprise for you this week. Haven't you, John? Oui, uh, je m'appelle Jean, and aujourd'hui, je we last time appel la poule est dans le kitchen bibliothèque attorney agush ha so i believe he's going to cook you a chicken if you turn left and go to the library correct <laughs> so actually seems quite nice for you john while smoking a cigarette and waving some onions and garlic at you to, to go on the chicken i assume you're back on the uss stereotype there john <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll be back in two weeks, hopefully in person this time. But until then, you've been listening to... A woman who is awaiting a HR meeting. A man who's plotting his first appearance on Homo Ridiculous. <laughs> a man who's wondering how many people he accidentally killed playing shit sex adventures in the 1980s. <laughs> and I'm uh, Dan on the Moon. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll... Uh, See you again next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Would you believe they put a damn on the moon? I always feel sorry for Michael Stipe because he must go out and occasionally people will think he's Moby. Mm. Which must be really unpleasant to be mistaken for Moby. <laughs> Natalie Portman just comes up and slaps him for no reason. Well, for quite a good reason, to be fair. Not if it's Michael Stipe. 
Oh, not if it's Michael no, Stipe. I think no. so. Michael mm. Stipe goes. Michael Stipe should go out when an I'm not Moby T-shirt. Or Moby should go out when an I'm not Moby T-shirt. Well, Moby would be clever enough to do that. Yeah, he's an intelligent man. What did Moby do to Natalie Portman? Um, he... He was a dick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit, I wasn't recording.